0: Hello, and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and assistant professor of law at the Scalia Law School. And I'm joined, as always, by Richard Epstein, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of law at the New York University Law School. Richard, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Well, Richard, we're all recovering from Kavanaugh Week uh, the, Senate's week, the Senate Judiciary Committee's week-long hearings on the Kavanaugh nomination to the Supreme Court. So let's start with that. What were your general impressions of the Kavanaugh hearings?
1: Well, I'm, first of all, I should announce my silent protest about these confirmation hearings, which is I did read extensively some of the testimony here, there, and the other place, but I did not have the moral fiber to bring myself to watch any of it, including your splendid testimony when I was otherwise occupied. Uh, but my first reaction is the same one that I've had to every one of these hearings, which is I think that it is a why, an unwise decision to ever have the nominee testify under these circumstances. Uh, the question is, what are you trying to find out and why? Uh, To start the discussion off, it turned out the instant opposition of the Democrat leadership to Kavanaugh was based on his opinions and his general philosophy. Uh, Given the uh, built-in political nature of all confirmation hearings with Senate consent, they don't have to explain to me or to anybody else why it is that they want to know vote no. Uh, that's just perfectly clear. There's a fundamental disagreement and they do not want to see the direction of the Supreme Court move in a particular fashion. And I think they're perfectly entitled to vote that preferences. And if they had a majority inside the committee um, or inside the Senate as a whole, uh, they could block uh, the particular nomination. That's not what the issue is. Uh, so You're not trying to find out any information about what this person's judicial record is. You already know that. So what's the only thing that you could start to learn by trying to question this person? And That is essentially to try to trap him in some kind of a mistake and to be able to come forward with a question which isn't quite clear enough, uh, have him hesitate. He didn't remember. He didn't prepare. Give a somewhat... Uh, evasive answer, or so it could be argued, and then turn him into a liar. So one of the lines of questioning is, did you lie to this committee when you were up for confirmation as a circuit court judge in 2004 and 2006? And then what they do is they give a somewhat misleading statement of the way in which his um, discussions went. Uh, When you're dealing with a deposition like this, and that's what this is essentially, the first thing you always remember uh, or have to be reminded of if you don't remember is how imperfect your memory can be on matters of detail. And for somebody like Kavanaugh, who was literally in a hot seat for several years, uh, basically being the dispatch officer for papers, it's very easy to forget, to overlook, or to make some kind of nuance. I do not think it behooves anybody to want to run a particular hearing in which one of the objects is to defame the nominee. And so on this particular point, I compare this to what the Republicans did to Garland. They had all the same information. They didn't want him for the inverse reasons of the Democrats. They wanted to make sure that the court was in conservative hand. Anything in the hearings would have been utterly irrelevant to that determination, which was set in stone. So they did the decent thing. They didn't hold the hearing. That meant that there was nobody who was going to try to trap uh, Garland, who's an honorable and able man, um, in some kind of deception. They weren't going to try to showboat. The whole thing was done in a way which I think spared the nation some of these tra- tra- the travail. The second thing that you want to do in a hearing like this is you want to run for president or you want to showboat or you want to sort of vaunt your own particular kinds of credentials. Well, you don't need the senator. You don't need the nominee there in order to do those things. Uh, You can do it. It's better or for worse. Uh, So in general, what I do is I come away with this with a kind of a depressed feeling uh, that the whole thing only lower the eyes of the Senate, particularly the Democratic members, because they're the ones who are going for the kill on this thing. One sort of real issue is oh, what do you mean by the phrase common use? Is something that Diane Feinstein, a noted cons- constitutional lawyer, asked. And she said, unless you're using something 50% of the time or more, it's not in common use, it's in your closet. I mean, it's the kind of definition which, if you applied it to handguns, would lead to the same result. So Kavanaugh, essentially reasoning by analogy in a Second Amendment case, uh, comes up with the same correct answer about rifles and handguns and distinguishes them from assault weapons. Uh, To give an argument like this just disgraces the senator Who puts it forward? Uh, So I am essentially disillusioned with this process. I think the bottom line is, although there were certainly some hiccups and some awkward moments uh, in this kind of endurance contest, I don't think anybody's mind was changed by it. Uh, I think the Republicans are going to keep a pretty much a united front on this. And my guess is there may be two or three Democrats, the usual, who will come over to the other side. So the vote will be 54, 55 to 45, something in that particular range, and he will be confirmed. There's a lot bloodier way of doing this kinds of thing. And it seems to me that uh, we should strive to minimize the amount of dislocation. And the best way in which to do that is to make sure that the nominee doesn't have to appear before the committee. Anybody who wants to say anything about him or what he has written is free to do so. But all the other pyrotechnics are going to be removed. And the less attention that is paid to confirmation hearings because the principal actor is not there, so much the better.
0: I'm actually a big fan of confirmation hearings and of ah, having the a nominee in person. Uh, first of all, I mean, at the simplest level, uh, it's a lifetime appointment made by the politically accountable parts of our government. And so I like the fact that our nominee comes and has to answer questions. Of course, the history, the early history of this is not very savory at all, right? It's the, 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 the original hearings uh Involving Justice Brandeis, although he didn't appear, really were centered around anti-Semitic prejudice against Brandeis. And since then, obviously, we've had hearings that have gone uh, in horribly shameful ways. Right, the the unsuccessful high-tech lynching of Clarence Thomas, the character assassination of Robert Bork, and so on. So obviously, these these the process can get ugly. But I think it's important that we have the process first of all to to kick the tires on the nominee. But also, I think that this is a rare opportunity for the public to pause and really pay attention and discuss what it means to have a court and a constitution in our government, right? So so rarely do we really have debates that focus on the court per se. I mean, we have debates in the confirmation hearings, not just about certain precedents, but we have debates over what it means to be a precedent, Right that sort of extra level of of theory surrounding our court, and the public actually gets drawn into it and sure, the senator's questions are oftentimes ridiculous, and even when the questions are well intended and thoughtful, sometimes they come out the wrong way or they're easily evaded. but I think actually for everything bad that comes with the confirmation process and when Kevin, I was nominated. People would say, "Oh man, are you? You must be really worried about this hearing. How ugly it's going to get with the attacks on him." And I said, "Well, of course it's going to get ugly. In some ways, it'll be the worst of our politics, but in other ways, it really is the best of our politics." And so I try uh, to keep uh, at least one eye focused on the good things that happen in this. I actually like that the the nominees are posed questions about their opinions, and obviously, nominees are limited and what they can answer you know, looking forward, especially when the nominee is somebody like Kavanaugh or Gorsuch or Sotomayor, that is somebody who's currently a sitting judge and has particular ethical obligations to avoid prejudging cases. I think it's good that the nominees are pressed on what it means to interpret the law, how they go up about interpreting the law. Ideally, for me, Uh, the senators would ask the nominee about specific judicial opinions and have the nominees justify his or her reasoning in that one specific case and try to explain it. And of course, there's only, of course, there's only so much you can really expect out of a political body. But I think that the only thing worse than confirmation hearings would be the lack of confirmation hearings.
1: Well, I'm not saying you abandon the hearing. You could have the show without the fellow there. But I want to make a couple of points. One, I agree with you implicitly but in a somewhat different way on the question of what should be done for a judicial appointment relative to what should be done for a political appointment in confirmation hearings. My general attitude is a president who has to put together an administration – uh, should, with respect to political appointments that won't outlast his administration, be given generally a deferential uh, view by the Congress, I think, or the Senate rather. I think it would be a big, big mistake to constantly say, no, uh, you're a Republican senator, you're something of a hawk, you have to make sure that your Secretary of State balances you off, and we're not going to approve anybody who agrees with you um, if we have the control. And so I think that that is surely right. And I agree that when it comes to judges whose appointments outlast the administration, who are not part of the administration, a much higher level of scrutiny is fully warranted. And what's interesting about the text of the Constitution is it makes no distinction as between the two different kinds of hearings. Um, But politically, I think that turns to be appropriate. Uh, The second thing about this being an educational forum and so forth, I think if anything, we're probably oversaturated. Um, If there's one dreary debate in American constitutional law, it's the debate over originalism versus a living constitution and all of their permutations done in the abstract without regard to particular Texas circumstances. So my basic reaction to that is the last people I want running that particular seminar are the collection of senators who are sitting on the Judiciary Committee. I think the coverage of American constitutional law is extremely large and the quality obviously varies very much. So let them run their particular hearings. Uh, but I don't think that it, it's going to have the educative purpose that you seem to think about it. Um, I, I guess I'm a little bit more cynical about this. And, you know, as you mentioned the hearings, uh, there's a following pattern. Um, uh, which are the hearings that prove to be raucous and essentially very difficult? Well, it's certainly the Bork and the Thomas hearings, and it's certainly the Gorsuch and uh, the Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, I think there was a little bit of this, but clearly less when it was Alito and Roberts. But, and it was back, going back in the olden days, uh, There was very difficult uh, when they basically lynched, I think, Clement Hainsworth at the same time they rightly got rid of harrod Coswell. And you go back in the 1930s when John J. Parker wasn't nominated because his views on Yellow Door Contract. Um, There's been a lot of Democratic opposition. I cannot think of a single case where the Republicans have launched the same kind of attack on the Democrats. Certainly, it wasn't true with Ginsburg and Breyer. It wasn't even remotely close. And even with Sotomayor and Kagan, I think the level of intensity was a lot lower. You did not have motions for adjournments at the beginning of the hearing. You didn't get protesters coming in. You didn't get quite the same level of grandstanding. What's happening is the trend line is sheerly up. It's going to get worse and worse, not better and better. But I think on this particular issue, the Democrats, particularly since they're trying to gain control of a body, which they've not had for many, many years, are really pulling out all the stops, whereas the Republicans don't have to do all of that because they actually run the proceedings. If there's a Democratic president and a Republican Senate, you will see a lot of fireworks, just as you did under Obama.
0: I did think it was ironic. You know, we live in a moment where you hear so much about the degradation of respect for rules and norms. Uh, criticisms often directed, you know, obviously at, at President Trump. Uh, I thought it was interesting to see uh, some of some of the Senate Democrats, uh, Booker especially, with his stunt with uh, what he thought were confidential documents. Right. It was really interesting to see in real time the norms and rules of the Senate Judiciary Committee just being thrown out by those same, uh, same people who would criticize the president. Now, Kavanaugh, whether you like it or not, Kavanaugh did appear before this hearing, and I'm just curious, Richard, what your view of his substance was. And I'm asking you th- asking this question, and I'll tell you what, what I want to ask you next, is I want to point our listeners back to your famous debate with Nino Scalia in the mid-1980s over judicial restraint and, and individual liberty. I'm curious, as you watch hearings of judges like Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and so on, who really do cast themselves in a mold of Scalia, um, what do you think of, of their views as expressed in the
1: hearings? Um, My view about it is I think that Kavanaugh got roughly the right balance uh, when you're starting to deal with constitutionalism. One of the things that you have to be aware of if you're vaguely in the originalist camp is taking a position in which narrow interpretations of text, apart from context, history, structure, and so forth, are thought in some sense to be dispositive. And uh, there was a piece that was written in I think it was in the New York Times, uh, which said, ah, you know, all the textualists should not support our good friend Kavanaugh because he also believes that structure, context and history and practice matter. And my reaction is I don't care what the textualists think. I think, in effect, that when you're dealing with constitutional law, uh, which I've worked in and taught for many years over the time, is that there's no way any one particular mode of interpretation is going to dominate all people in all cases. There's just too much play in the joint, too many great silences, as Justice Jackson said a long time ago in the Constitution, for us to think that the text could be dispositive. To give you but one illustration, the famous Zivatovsky case. Was the issue, who gets to decide whether or not we're going to recognize a foreign government? There's actually nothing in the Constitution that's directed to that particular issue. And so you have to draw all sorts of inferences one way or another. That was a case where I thought Justice Kennedy was right when he said it's the president, uh, given the way our structure is organized. And Justice Scalia was wrong on kind of practice grounds when he took the opposite kind of position. But it's the kind of issue and there could be a lot of differences. So when I see a fellow who is essentially going to be multifaceted, um, not because he wants to be, but because there's literally no escape from it. My basic reaction is anybody who understands that the Constitution rests on many pillars is not going to be going off very far on the deep end one way or another. Um, he's quite different from, for example, Justice Thomas on this issue, who's much more of a unique textualist. doesn't care about practice, doesn't care about history, doesn't care that much about structure. And so Thomas would be somebody who's quite hostile to the dormant commerce clause, i.e. the ability of the court to stop provincial state legislation, even though that's been part of the practice of American constitutional law now uh, for close to 200 years. So I think he's going to be fine. I'll, I'll put it in a slightly different fashion. There is now a great cottage game of trying to figure out how the justices line up from right to left. And it's, since it's a multidimensional game, it's very hard to give a single-dimensional answer. So forgive the imprecision. But I think the ranking is Thomas on the right. I think Gorsuch and Alito are about the same thing. I would put Kavanaugh somewhat to the left of them. I would put Roberts a little bit further to the left of them. There's a gap. Then you get Breyer, small grap Kagan, larger gap Ginsburg, smaller gap Sotomayor this is, I think, the way this court goes. This guy is slotting in at the fourth position. What means, in effect, is that Justice Roberts is now the swing vote on the United States Supreme Court. And, of course, he handed the liberals their two greatest victories, having to do with the um, issues associated with the um, Obamacare upholding its originally and so forth, and then allowing the subsidies to go for uh, federally funded exchanges, even though the text of the Constitution says, uh, for states that establish in this exchange. So I think that's basically where it is. It's going to be a small change the big change will come if it's Ruth Ginsburg who steps down or is disabled, dies, I suppose. Um, if she is then replaced by a conservative, it would make a – that would be a seismic shift relative to this one, which I regard as a modest shift.
0: Now, your placement of Kavanaugh, that's interesting. That's that's where I would place him too, like you said. Which,
1: a reasonable agreement. reasonable
0: right. agreement. That's right. Um, the the – of course, like you said, it's almost impossible to really array them on a single spectrum since the issues change. But yeah, in a general sense, I see him basically in the same vein as, as Gorsuch, but then slightly to the side, slightly towards Roberts, if only because Kavanaugh strikes me as slightly more content with 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 tweaking some legal doctrines you know well here's here 's an example um, Gorsuch has some very broadly um, stridently straight stridently stated criticisms of judicial deference and chevron deference it 's not hard to imagine Justice Gorsuch joining justice Thomas in in sort of full throated calls to get rid of judicial deference altogether. Kavanaugh, as I was preparing for my testimony especially, I, it was a nice reminder that Kavanaugh doesn't really express his criticism of Chevron in the same ways. He's been very content on the D.C. Circuit to apply the Chevron framework, to follow the court's lead and maybe trimming it here, adding a few breaks here, uh, B-R-A-K-E-S, breaks, slowing things down. But he hasn't really endorsed any call to to take things completely apart. Now, maybe like Chief Justice Roberts, this reflects uh, Kavanaugh's, you know, real roots in in D.C. legal practice in the executive branch also. And being, you know, therefore more content with the settled arrangements between the executive branch and the courts especially. Uh, He may be much less interested in starting things from scratch than Gorsuch and Thomas and, and Alito are.
1: I agree with that. I think Gorsuch is a a kind of a very deeply theoretical, consistent thinker, Mm -hmm. Um, and that has both virtues and dangers. The hardest questions in constitutional law in many cases deal with this simple proposition – if we think that we made a mistake sometime in the past, is it one that we're comfortable with and we will ratify it? Or do we think that it is so obnoxious that we have to undo it at the first opportunity? And I'll just give a couple of cases on both sides of the line. Plessy v. Ferguson, it seemed to me, gutted a huge amount of what the 14th Amendment about. Uh, with an uh, extravagantly broad definition of what the police power constituted. And the sooner you got rid of that, the better, which is what happened in a very awkward opinion, but nonetheless decisive opinion in Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, But there are other kinds of doctrines, like the dormant Commerce Clause, which should have been around for 200 years, which has facilitated, essentially, the creation of a national market against balkanization by the states, so that even people like Justice Jackson, who are willing to cartelize everything through the national government, they are very, very worried about breaking up these lines, and they support that doctrine. As far as I'm concerned, uh, if you don't treat those two things differently— and you don't give the support to the dormant Commerce Clause, at the same time you're taking after the racist and segregationist doctrines in Plessy v. Ferguson— you're not where I would want to be. So I think uh, on these kinds of issues, Kavanaugh, I think, is more steeped in history. I don't know what Gorsuch would say about the dormant Commerce Clause. My guess is he would probably ratify it. And there are lots of other doctrines which are just flat out wrong in terms of originalism. Uh, Why is that? Uh, Because the originalist constitution wanted to put all sorts of breaks on the central government in order to make sure that the states had some genuine checks on them, including knocking out appellate jurisdiction of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, which I don't think is in the cards today. So one has to be very careful about the question of how far back you go to the text, because the first two cases that are on the chopping block are Martin against Hunter's Lessee, which allows for federal review of state decisions, which struck down federal laws, and Marbury v. Madison, which essentially after Cooper and Aaron became a uh, judicial supremacy case. So originalism could be extremely potent, and it has to be softened a little bit. And I think that or having being very comfortable with the administrative state knows that there's a bomb that is likely to explode if you go too hard on everything that was 1787. But it's equally dangerous to be completely deferential And Chevron is not a constitutional decision in this sense. All you have to do is apply the Administrative Procedure Act 706A, which says you get de novo review of all questions of law. And what you've done is undone a doctrine which essentially was always against the statute. The Chevron case never cited. Section seven hundred six, on um, which governs this, so that's not a constitutional revolution, but in terms of its significance in practical day to day affairs, it would surely be momentous.
0: One of the reasons why I think Kavanaugh will be in less of a hurry to undo things like Chevron deference uh, is that I, I suspect he's more conversant in the roots of the, the recent roots of these doctrines. Right. The Chevron doctrine was created for a reason. It was created as the last big effort by the Supreme Court to really push back against the lower courts, especially the D.C. Circuit, that have been micromanaging Republican administrations, Nixon, Ford, Reagan. Um, One of the reasons why I'm kind of agnostic on Chevron, in fact, I find myself becoming, if not pro-Chevron, more anti-anti-Chevron is because I I think Scalia got it right in his 1989 Duke Law Journal article that properly applied with a rigorous step one. Uh, and that, incidentally, that's how Kavanaugh has phrased his approach, mirroring Scalia, a very rigorous textualist step one in reading the statute. And then to the extent that a statute, like many statutes, uh, leaves some policy discretion to the agency, then leaves space for the agency itself to exercise that discretion. I, I don't yet agree with the statutory and constitutional criticisms of Chevron. For example, you're right. The Chevron opinion does not cite this provision in 5 U.S.C. Section 706 of the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, where it says the court shall interpret all provisions of law. That's true. They don't cite the provision. But Justice Stevens' opinion for the majority does say plainly, I think in footnote 7 or 8, the, the court does, in the, the court is in the end responsible for interpreting all provisions of law. I think that the the justices who created Chevron deference thought that the court still was interpreting the law just in step two with a more deferential approach. In fact, I think the framers of the APA, uh, I think their debates make clear that they understood when they passed that language, Section 706, they were doing so against a backdrop of certain measures of judicial deference. That predated the APA now, of course, as Phil Hamburger and Justice Thomas and others are increasingly clearly pointing out uh, at some point, deference becomes abdication, and there isn 't a bright line there, um, and that 's something I think the proponents of Chevron really need to grapple with is how do you actually ensure that deference doesn 't become just outright abdication of a judicial role. But sort of to borrow a line I used earlier in the podcast, sometimes I think the only thing worse only thing worse than Chevron might be the absence of Chevron and a return to the days of Skelly Wright and David Bazelon acting as the de facto environmental regulators for the country, regardless of who happens to win a, a presidential election now, now Richard, another aspect of administrative law that
1: okay, can I come back oh please go on ahead this? go ahead. Yeah, look, uh, the person who argued, Chevron, was Paul Bator, who was a colleague of mine in his last years at the University of Chicago. And he was stunned at the grounds on which he won the case. Uh, Paul was an absolutely meticulous lawyer. Careful, cautious, and the whole thing. And what happened is he basically thought he was right on the statute. And you're certainly right about the reckless nature of the D.C. Circuit. The opinion below was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was on the D.C. Circuit, in which she said, Well, you know, uh, the purpose of all these regulations is to improve the environment. This one doesn't seem to me to improve the environment. I'm striking it down. Uh, but the problem that Chevron started with is it was a case of manufactured ambiguity. Statutory structure was very clear under these circumstances. You had to look to some unrelated provision to get a slightly different meaning of the same term. When any of the standard norms of interpretation would have said uh, you look at the things that are central and you ignore those things which are highly peripheral. And so, if in fact you started with Chevron, it gets off on the wrong foot because that was a case in which both the purpose of the statute and the text of the governing provision pointed exactly in the same way on this question whether or not lots of smokestacks that were close together should be treated as a single quote-unquote point emission from a stationary source uh, so that you can switch the output back and forth between smokestacks without having to get de novo review from an administrative agency over the same thing. So they got the wrong line. So now, what do we do with close cases? And here I think the disagreement with us is actually quite, quite small. My view is, if you're running one of these kinds of things, And you see there's a consistent practice, and it's a close question, and the government has some greater expertise than the other side. If all these things are true, they should be able to make stronger arguments on close cases than the people on the other side and will win most of those. So I – I think your formulation is not one that I'd like to have, which I said, give them deference in close cases. Uh, my view is have a continuous situation. We're always looking for the best circumstances. But in fact, if there is that a little bit of a gap, the government has the natural advantages in arguing that cases. So you have a uniform theory of interpretation and recognize that in close cases, government expertise might tip the balance. I think that's the differences between us. But as you well know, go back to a case like our um, having to deal with the definition of an executive, administrative, or professional employee, those guys were just simply out to lunch. And the hour deference, which is the kid sister of Chevron deference, really led you very much in the wrong direction. Well, I actually
0: not, – I'm not trying to manufacture disagreements. Somebody once asked, by the way, Richard, whether we try to manufacture disagreements here, whether we actually believe what we're saying. I don't know whether they meant that – whether my, my friend thought that I was making things up or you were. Um, but but here's a place where oh well, we both maybe we, here's a place where I, we really do have a disagreement because for me Chevron deference's is justification isn't just um, about the expertise of the agency or the consistent unbroken practice of the agency that that lends weight to its interpretation I do think that other side of Chevron deference is important as well the part where the court is acknowledging. That in some statutes, Congress is, in effect, delegating policy discretion to the agency, and that it's much better to concede that space to the agency just in terms of democratic self-governance and not just technocratic expertise.
1: I agree with that. I mean, in those particular cases where the statute says we need the administrator to decide what the appropriate level of admissions is from a given kind of point source, um, and there's a range of argument one way or another, I think the correct way to do this is to think of those cases as a trial court making an initial decision on a question of fact, and unless it's clearly erroneous, it ought to prevail. Uh, So to me, the other part of the villain in this case is the arbitrary and capricious side, uh, which is wildly overread. Um, in some cases, in the state farm case decided the year before Chevron, in which the definition of arbitrary and capricious at one level is hey, if you take into account something that you should ignore or ignore something you should take into account, uh, you're incorrect on this thing and we're going to force you to do it again. That's a crazy definition. I think what you have to do is to say, looking at the full basket of things that you started to consider, is there a credible case that you could put forward in favor of the statute, notwithstanding the fact that we may disagree with you on the evaluation of this, that, or the other point. So let me put it to you this way. Maybe we could get an agreement after all. If we were to sort of tamp down on arbitrary and capricious from state farm. On questions dealing with sort of underlying facts and the way in which they come together, and then treat the pure questions of law in the manner in which I've done it, doesn't that get you pretty much to where you want to go? Or are you going to try and defend State Farm as well?
0: Well, I don't have time to defend State Farm as well, so I better agree. But no, I think that I think I think oh. that sounds pretty good. I think that one of the challenges of administrative law is the doctrines keep shifting. And they keep – one one change compensates for another. At some point, they they end up blurring together. We get into these esoteric debates over whether arbitrary and capricious review is the same as Chevron step two. Or does Chevron have two steps or one step or no steps or 27 steps? It's hard to say. Since we have listeners who listen to this podcast while they're behind the wheel, I'm afraid to keep talking about administrative law. I don't want to put them to sleep. And send them yeah. off the side of the road. You don't want to crash. But man. but let's talk a little bit about administrative law judges because in a few weeks you and I will be uh, speaking together with other friends uh, and colleagues at at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, where I teach and I run a program called the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And this year on September 26th, my center will have the, its first annual. Uh, administrative Law Symposium with the George Mason Law Review. And last spring, when we decided to do this, when the when the Law Review invited the center to do this, we said, well, what topic should we pick? And I said to the editors, it ought to be about administrative law judges, because there were two cases coming down the pipe in the Supreme Court, one called uh, Lucia versus SEC about the appointment of administrative law judges, and another case called uh, Oil States Energy Services against Green, which involved... Uh, the the Intellectual Property Adjudication Board's power to to terminate patents. Uh, both struck me as interesting cases. And as we assembled, what really is, I mean, uh, at risk of being shameless here, an all-star cast of scholars, including Dick Pierce and Michael Asimo, and, and a lot of, of really smart folks from the administrative law field. I was so glad, Richard, that you were Uh, so uh, interested in participating. You'll be our keynote speaker. And you've written a very thorough paper, which the working title of it is Structural Protections for Individual Rights, the Indispensable Role of Article Three Courts in the Administrative State. So, Richard, would you mind just giving a preview of your argument? What is it about ALJs that you're focusing on? And what's your criticism of this longstanding uh, component of modern administrative law?
1: I'm more than happy to do that, Adam. This is a subject on which I've developed a great deal of passion over the time. Uh, The basic challenge that one has to do is to figure out the following question. Why is it that many people like Justice Kennedy, for example, have constantly said that separation of powers is to some extent a bulwark of individual liberty? And if you start looking at this in the abstract... It's quite clear that these are very different kinds of protections from the ones that you get with freedom of speech or religion or of property or of equal protection. Why is it that this statement turns out to be true if it's true at all? And I think the answer is in what I call a prophylactic rule. If, in fact, you require the independence of the judges and you go through the kind of confirmation process, uh, what happens is you put together a set of institutions that are much more immune from political influence and persuasion uh, than you would get if, in fact, you tried to keep everything inside the executive or the legislative branch or some hybrid version as between And the way in which you can start to test that is to see what happens when we start to see the rise of administrative judges. In some cases, they seem to be relatively innocuous. A huge volume of small uh, Social Security cases, which way do the payments go, which way not, may be all right. I'm not going to say yes because I don't study them very closely. But the two cases before the Supreme Court this past term, which I think show a very, very weak and bad side to the administrative state, Uh, with the oil state's case against green energy and then Lucia against the SEC. And in the oil state's case, what happened is the Congress with the American Advents Act decided to allow for an institution known as Interpartes Review, not only before the patent is issued, but after the patent is issued. And in fact, they made this institution strong enough that you can enjoin the enforcement of a district court judgment, which went the opposite way uh, from the particular panel. And this was justified on the grounds that you're going to get greater promptness and expertise if you start working through the ALJs. But then what you do is you start looking at the way in which the heads of the PTAB, the Patent Trial and Appeal Boards, announce their roles, and frankly, you should be horrified at what they claim. So this was first from Michelle. Lee and then it was David Ruschke. And what they both said is, you know, we want to make sure that these cases come out the right way. So we're going to pick from a very large panel of judges, the individual judges whom we think are going to get the right results on this. And we further reserve the right to put ourselves on these particular panels or to name additional judges in the middle of a proceeding uh, to make sure that the whole thing is going to come out um, the way in which we would like to do so. And then you compare this to an Article 3 court in which you never give uh, the power of the chief justice to designate who's going to sit on a particular case. What you do is you assign people by rotation. And often you don't even announce the panel far in advance so you don't want people writing their briefs, tailoring it to particular folks. And to me, if you start to sanction this kind of proceedings, uh, the bias issues dominate the expertise issues. And when the Supreme Court decided to let this go through, I think they made a big mistake. Some people say, well, in Lucia, you have what is known as the appointments clause problem, which is for inferior offices, uh, they have to be appointed by the head of a department, uh, which in the case of the SEC uh, would turn out probably to be, I think it is the, either the Department of Commerce and maybe even the commission itself. Uh, but this is not a very powerful protection because if the person's running the show, just simply give a list of... Um, appropriate nominees to the people at the top of the pile and they appoint them, you avoid this problem. But what did we see there? Well, the judge in the Lucia case was a man named Cameron Elliott. And what he basically announced is, I've never found against the SEC. And if you really want to come hard against me, what I'm going to do is I'm basically going to ban you from life and I'm going to impose a heavy fine on you. And he did that in a case where on the factual record, the things were just microscopic case. It was the weakest case imaginable for this kind of behavior. No form of absolute loss, no even evidence of fraudulent conduct having any effect on anybody at any time against a man who would use these kinds of procedures for many years and had already cleared them um, in a preliminary fashion, both with the oversight boards of the SEC on the private side and indeed with the SEC itself. So in the end, Uh, It just turns out putting people in these kinds of positions is just a terrible mistake. Uh, You need to have this kind of independence. Uh, People who are political appointees are likely to make political appointees in these kinds of bodies. So if you can't do this as a separation of powers issue, the next battle, which has already been hinted at in some opinions, is procedural due process. How can somebody have a trial free from bias if somebody has announced in advance that we want the outcome to come out in a certain way? And my view is you don't want this procedural due process stuff to be on an ad hoc basis in which, well, this trial's okay and that one's not. I think, in effect, that you have to say that it's a per se violation of procedural due process if you don't follow the anonymity and rotation requirements that exist in these kinds of tribunals that you start to have when you're doing cases um, in federal court. So the basic theme of the paper was uh, the framers got this one right. Uh, By creating judicial independence and putting out people with broad class of expertise and so forth, what you do is you reduce the probability of things going wrong. And for example, Mr. Rushke was basically relieved of his position after these cases went on by the new head of the uh, Patent and Trade Office. Uh, So the whole thing is sort of very, I think, very unsavory to have these people with enormous powers, very short terms, one way or another, never quite sure which way the appointments are going. Uh, So to me, the Supreme Court did not see the seriousness of these cases. And the reason it did not see them is because when it looked at this stuff, it was an appellate court looking at things at a very abstract level of what the record said without actually digging into the things and seeing in which the day-to-day operation of these cases operates. And so uh, that's the theme I'm going to talk about at this conference that we're going to have, uh, the connection between separation of powers, the appointments clause. Procedural due process and individual liberty.
0: You know, forty years ago, in 1979, when when he was still your colleague at Chicago, uh, Justice Scalia wrote a paper about ALJs called "The ALJ Fiasco." And there's a funny line in the introduction. He looks back on on the the legislation that gave rise to the modern form of ALJ, taking what used to be called hearing officers and transforming them or renaming them administrative law judges. And and Congress did that at the time to fix problems of what it saw as bias. And so Scalia has a funny line in this paper where he says, it's a triumph that 30 years later we should be concerned not about bias, but about bona fide incompetence. And so here we are 40 years later once again returning to questions of of pretty blatant bias, but also questions about expertise. When Congress renamed hearing officers into ALJs, it was trying to strike a balance, trying to have both – the efficiency of uh, of agency, but also the independence of judges. And they really were trying to have their cake and eat it too. And to whatever extent it survived now for 70 years, I think we have reached the point where the scholars and judges alike are increasingly aware that this 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 balance is is unsustainable in the long term, right? Either there's going to have, especially in the aftermath of the last few decades of Supreme Court jurisprudence, which has helped to reconnect agency personnel to be accountable uh, to the president. It's pretty untenable to have uh, ALJs who wield real power within the agency, but then are, are so detached from the accountability to the agency's leadership. I think ultimately the court's Congress are going to have to choose one path or another. If they want truly independent judges for administrative law, well, there's an app for that. Right? The Constitution says there is such a thing. They're called federal judges uh, with life tenure, tenure for good behavior. The response is always, well, we can't do that because there's just too much work being funneled through administrative law judges and administrative judges. Article three judges could never keep up. Uh, that's a fair response, But the solution to that so far, namely the creation of ALJs and AJs, seems to be reaching maybe not a breaking point but a point of real reform and reconsideration.
1: You're so sober and wise, Adam. (laughs) Um, But let me make the following observation about the expertise point. There was a wonderful brief written by Jonathan Mitchell, um, former Solicitor General of Texas and my former student uh, for the New Civil Liberties Union, an organization put together by Philip Hamburger and Mark Chenoweth. And what he said is the judges that you get in these cases can be drawn from elsewhere in the administrative system. So that Cameron Elliott was a social security type judge and with no particular expertise in these SEC cases until he was drafted into this kind of service. And I think one has to recognize that the entire appointments process inside a political organization can really get to be extremely dicey. And for that reason, one has to be exceptionally cautious about the way in which it works. This is a long-term debate for years about the extent to which expertise and bias in conflict inside specialized agencies. And on questions of law, I have no doubt which way the balance is. The dangers of bias of political actors is very great. And judges who spend their time interpreting these same statutes when there's no interposition of administrative agencies can do it as well in this context as they can in everywhere else. On the fact side of these things where it takes, you know, complicated scientific testimony and so forth, uh, you have one of two solutions. You can either give some deference to administrative agencies under State Farm or what you can do is you can move them into specialized Article I courts with long-terms and independent judges, 15 years, 14 years for the tax court and the bankruptcy court and so forth, um, and get yourself the longevity and independence through Senate confirmation. And I'm not at this point really opposed to Article I courts. It goes back to our original situation. I think service doing good behavior is a terrible mistake. Uh, Because what it does is it lets people stay on courts much too long. And that a 14 or a 15-year term or retirement at age 70 is a much better solution. And I think we have that available. And I might also add uh, that we are very, very slow now in funding and approving the positions for new federal district court judges. I'm told by my students who've clerked that there's just an incredibly crushing burden on district court judges and highly technical matters having very little to do with grand politics because Congress doesn't get to them. And we should probably have another federal, 100 federal district court judges confirmed within this next six months if we want to keep up. But this constant spat between the two parties essentially slows this process down, and I think that this is a national tragedy. There's a very strong pool of both able Democrats and able Republicans out there, and you have to improve this process so I think in effect that we really want to reconsider the two cases that i 've mentioned
0: well Rick, Richard, I think that 's a a good note to close on. I do want to add by the way you mentioned Jonathan Mitchell and his and, yeah. and his legal brief in addition to everything else he 's done he 's been he was a Hoover fellow. Uh, hoover Re- Hoover institution visiting fellow a couple of years ago, uh, and he spent time at Stanford law School so uh, speaking of Hoover Institution, I hope our audience will check out the hoover institution's other podcasts, including uh, uh, area forty five by with bill Whalen uh, the uh, <laughs> I should have written them down before this the classicist with Victor Davis Hansen uh, and of course the libertarian with our very own richard epstein richard as always it 's been a pleasure
1: oh joy. Always great to be with you. This podcast has
0: been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.